0: This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by the United Health Foundation, committed to improving health outcomes and building healthier communities. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the
1: newsroom to you live.
2: Good morning. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for the Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live, and the first part of a two part series about children's health equity, starting off the conversation the administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Chiquita brooks LaShore. Administrator brooks LaShore, welcome to Washington Post Live.
1: Thank you so much for having me and thank you for tackling this so important issue.
2: Well, of course, thank you again. But before we get to uh, children's uh, health equity, let's talk about the lawsuit filed this week by 10 states seeking to block the administration's COVID vaccine mandate. Uh, The suit claims that the rule issued last week by your agency, and I'm quoting here, threatens with job loss millions of healthcare workers who risked their lives in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic to care for strangers and friends in their communities. Your, Your response to that assertion?
1: I wanna really start by saying to to talk about how we came to the conclusion that it was critical for us to require uh, uh, vaccine requirements for the facilities over which we have responsibility for, which includes Medicare and uh, Medicaid certified facilities. The virus, not the vaccine is leading to workers not being able to go to work, whether it's because they're getting sick or whether they're quarantining. And so as we were looking across the country at where in the country we are still seeing COVID-19 outbreaks and, and uh, hospitalizations, we really wanted to make sure that people are safe and we know how much healthcare workers care about making sure their patients are safe. That has been um, our our perspective, and we very much want to work with facilities for this to be a, a voluntary and a, a collaborative uh, um, uh, process to get people vaccinated. And uh, exceptions if they have medical conditions, um, but very much our our. Focus is on making sure that people are safe. And as we shift to thinking about uh, child coverage, how wonderful is it? And I know I, as a mother, am just so thrilled that now um, kids uh, five to 11 can get vaccinated. And I think it's just an incredible. Uh, it, it's so incredible that our vaccines were available so so fast, um, thanks to the uh, hard work of so many people, and that we're now in a position that we can be uh, hopefully getting out of this pandemic quite mm-hmm. quite soon.
2: I want to pick up on something you said just a moment ago about working with the facility, uh, working with facilities, because that's something you also said in an interview with a colleague of mine here at the Washington Post earlier this week. Uh, What do you mean by that exactly? How does working with these facilities look like? What does that look like?
1: So the relationship that we as CMS have with facilities that we are responsible for is really a collaborative one in the sense of this is this is work that we do every day. We, CMS, working with the states, survey facilities and help them meet their requirements of which there are many. And this is another one where we will work with facilities to develop a plan. What we are focused on is making sure facilities are taking those actions to determine how to uh, get their, uh, their. Uh, workers, uh, their nurses, their doctors vaccinated. And a lot of this is around education. A lot of this is around peers talking to each other about the benefits. That's what we've seen in terms of vaccine hesitancy, that a lot of this is about education. And so that's part of what I mean about really working um, with the facilities to make sure that people feel uh, that they're hearing from um, people they trust. Uh, And a lot of these workers, you really think about the range of who we're talking about. We're talking about the home care workers who go into people's homes to care for them. And maybe um, younger women, Um, a lot of the workers are of modest, uh, modest means, and we know that a lot of the hesitancy, again, is around is hesitancy, and that's why we are really prioritizing education and not wanting this to be a draconian uh, uh, action. It's really about trying to make sure that people understand, um, really understand all of the all of the issues mm. um, that are are at, taking place here.
2: Last question on this. And and are are you seeing uh, much resistance to this mandate? I mean, it makes sense to have a mandate. Um, uh, There should be a mandate. But are you seeing, you know, as a result of the mandate, large scale resistance uh, on the part um, of those who uh, now have to get the vaccine?
1: What well, we have seen, and and again, which really informed our decision making, is in the states um, and the facilities that already have mandates. We have seen a huge jump in the number of people that get vaccinated. So, um, a particular uh, a Trinity, uh, which is a one, this one of the largest Catholic uh, uh, systems in the country, went from 75% to over 95% um, Mm -hmm. when they instituted a requirement. And we've seen that over and over. And even though there's a lot of discussion and noise about people being concerned, when you actually look at the data, the number of people that um, have chosen to leave uh, has been really small compared to the number of people who have gone ahead and taken that, that next step. Sometimes mm-hmm. you just need that little extra push,
2: a requirement helps. Right. All right, Administrator Brooks LaSure, let's talk about children's health equity. Give us a primer mm-hmm. on how Medicaid and, and CHIP are helping to provide greater health equity among children.
1: So I would start by saying that health insurance coverage is key to making sure that health equity disparities are addressed. It's really difficult to get the health care you need if you do not have the confidence and the assurance that that when you go to the doctor or need a prescription, etc., that that will be cared for. And the Medicaid program and CHIP program have been instrumental in changing the lives of of children. I have a particular affinity for the CHIP program because I started my career in the federal government right after it became the law of the land. And just changes in people's lives by being able to enroll their children in coverage. We've seen just so much over the last 20 years, what a difference that makes. Now, this year in 2021, we have record enrollment in Medicaid CHIP and the marketplace, uh, the ACA coverage. And one of the things that is so key is that kids have comprehensive coverage in Medicaid and CHIP. A lot of times kids don't actually enroll unless their parents are enrolled. And so with the coverage in Medicaid uh, and, and marketplace coverage, we ha- over the last 10 years or so have seen um, seen strong coverage in those programs.
2: So Medicaid and CHIP um, account for about 35% of uh, of insurance provided to children in the U.S. What are the limitations around what Medicaid and CHIP can provide uh, to pediatric uh, to uh, pediatric patients?
1: I would say that the coverage is really comprehensive. So, in the Medicaid program, for example, we have what we call EPSDT, which basically covers so many services in terms of if you. Anything that is diagnosed needs to be covered under the Medicaid program. I think what I would say, uh, and in CHIP, we have well baby, well child, so a number of uh, critical services are covered. I think we have to continue, and this is a role that CMS has with the states, to continue to make sure that, uh, that people not just have the card of coverage, but actually have access to all of the providers that they need and continue to have access. Some of that is education. Some of that is making sure people know what's available to them. And that's sometimes where we see disparities in terms of whether it's, um, whether it's access or whether it's uh, uh, not, not fully knowing what's available to you. And that's something mm-hmm. that we are incredibly focused on.
2: So you came into your position uh, under a new administration during during the pandemic. We saw the in, in the intro video you're swearing in. I believe it was May of of this year. How has the pandemic illuminated some of the equity issues for children that exist in in the healthcare system?
1: I think that we are at such a critical moment in healthcare policy, because over the last year and a half, Eyes have been opened to these disparities. And I think it shows an opportunity where we see what this means as a country when we do not when these gaps in our healthcare system, what they actually mean in terms of people's lives, and also what it means in terms of our own health as a nation. And so I look at this this time, which is a difficult one for so many of us, as an opportunity to do things differently. So again, to make sure we are we are very focused on the underserved uh, in this administration of making sure that every community is hearing what is available to them. There has been an acute uh, attention to maternal health. And I think we all understand that the health of a mother before she ever gives birth has an effect on the health of the child. And so, the Biden-Harris administration has been very focused on extending postpartum coverage. So we've seen that with the American Rescue Plan, giving states the option to uh, expand coverage for 12 months. And that's, again, a, a real area of focus. I did a lot of research on that this before I came to this um, position. And we see maternal health outcomes even two months after um, women have given birth. We see deaths. We see morbidity where women are not living their healthiest lives and making sure that we have health insurance coverage, making sure women are getting the services they they need so that they can care for their children, making sure that they are going to the doctor and the kids are going to the doctor. We have an incredible opportunity to move the needle on what are appalling numbers in our country on maternal mortality
2: you know as you were as you were responding it just occurred to me what impact what about what about those states that haven't expanded uh, medicaid coverage under the the affordable care act how has that played into some of these health equity disparities that we're seeing around the country
3: it's
1: It's critical. It is a critical issue. And we, as the administration, continue to encourage states to take up the Medicaid expansion. The American Rescue Plan put more dollars than ever for the states to expand. And when you think about what happens in these states that have not expanded coverage, lower income people, some of the poorest people in our country, not having access to critical services puts a strain on our hospitals. It puts a strain on our providers. And it makes a difference when it comes to child health, because if people don't have coverage and then get pregnant and then they get coverage, you've already let them be far uh, further back, right? So if you don't get your under treatment for your underlying services until you go until you have coverage, your health is not. It is not as strong as it would be if you had a health insurance. So the coverage gap, is, as we often call it, is a crucial uh, aspect, um, necessary, uh, not sufficient, to making sure that we address health disparities and improve child-to-child health.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, before I let you go, I gotta talk about the, the social determinants of health. Uh, mm-hmm. What services need to be provided to Medicaid pediatric recipients to bolster their coverage and make it as equitable as possible.
1: There is a lot of focus right now on what we call social determinants of health, and I like to think of it as those services that are that are adjacent to health, that really influence your ability to, um, to access the care you need. A number of states are looking into flexibility, whether it's outside of the Medicaid program, so partnering with their other programs that affect public health. And these are things like safe housing, and if you have asthma because you're in, uh, your home doesn't, uh, you know, has mold in it and and really understanding some of these crucial issues, access to nutritious foods. Part, part of this is a role that the Medicaid program can play through what we, um, you know, we call those waivers of states doing things um uh, expanding benefits, and part of this, I think, is really making sure that the public health part of our healthcare system is integrated with the programs that uh, that CMS administers, Medicaid, uh, Medicaid and CHIP, Medicare, and Marketplace coverage.
2: You know, one more question: on that. What, if any, work is being done to close the service deserts among physicians who do not accept Medicaid?
1: It's a critical issue. So as you know, providers in across the country have options about what type of coverage um, they they choose to, to participate, what programs they choose to participate in. And I think that this really fits into the access issue of making sure that uh, the program Medicaid is uh, attracting the types of providers that we need to make sure that people have adequate care. It's something that we have some responsibility for, but states are our partners in this in terms of payment rates, in terms of um, thinking about how to make sure that uh, the program is easy for uh, providers to participate in and really encouraging providers to to participate in this program so that children and everyone else on the on the program can actually see their doctor. And again, mm-hmm. just not have—it's the card of in your pocket that you have health insurance is not sufficient mm-hmm. to making sure you see your provider.
2: Now yeah, we're out of time, but I got asked this one truly last question: <laughs> For those those states that um, haven't expanded uh, Medicaid under the ACA, is there any way around them? Is there any way to, if not, go around them to compel them to provide? access to healthcare to the people in their states?
1: Well, I will say two things. One, we real, uh, strongly encourage all the states to come in and we continue to have conversations with them because we believe that States are closest to the ground and can design their programs in ways that make sense. In uh, the president has been very supportive of Congress filling what we call the coverage gap. So for the states who have not expanded uh, Medicaid for um, allowing them to get coverage through the federal government. And that's something that uh, is in the Build Back Better uh, agenda. And um, we hope that Congress um, uh, and, and they're in their process, and and that would be one way where, if states choose not to expand, people would get their coverage.
2: Now, I, I mean, you, you're you're kind of giggling because you you know there's only you can only strongly encourage. I was being a little provocative with that with that question, um, but um, administrator of the centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Chiquita brooks lashore we're out of time. Just when we were getting going, thank you so much for coming to Washington Post Live.
1: Thank you for having me. Have a good rest of your day.
2: All right, have a great weekend. When I come back, Dr. James Perrin and Dr. Kalser Talat, stay with us.
4: The following segment was
0: produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content.
3: Health inequities have an enormous and damaging implication for children. And so a new partnership is trying a new approach to address the issue. Joining me now is Dr. Margaret Mary Wilson. She is Executive Vice President and Associate Chief Medical Officer at United Health Group. Also with me is Dr. Hope Rhodes, Medical Director at the Arc and Co-Medical Director of the Healthy Generations Program at Children's National Hospital. Dr. Rhodes, as a practitioner here in Washington, DC, I'm wondering what kinds of health inequities you see, particularly in Ward 7 and 8.
0: So the Children's Health Center at the Arc and the mobile medical program primarily service families and children in Ward 7 and 8. One out of every three children that come into our health center, one out of every three children that access care through our mobile medical program are actually experiencing childhood poverty. Uh, That has implications for health outcomes. So we see uh, childhood obesity, poorly controlled asthma, infant mortality rates are high. We also see community violence. And you lay on top of that the social determinants of health, things like food insecurity, uh, unemployment, underemployment, housing insecurity. All of those things culminate to really negatively impact the health outcomes for children in Ward 7 and 8. Alongside that, one out of every three children that go to school in the district in the past have experienced up to 10% of missed school days. That can decrease the chances of children graduating from high school and increase the chances of children experiencing uh, poverty as adults.
3: Dr. Wilson, this week, the United Health Foundation announced a partnership with Children's National Medical Center. Explain to us how this will improve access.
5: Thank you, Jean. For more than two decades, um, United Health Group has worked in collaboration with community organizations and national partners to support efforts to address health disparities. And we established the United Health Foundation more than 20 years ago to support these efforts to help build healthier communities. And since then, we've partnered extensively with several organizations and invested over a billion dollars in over 4,000 underserved communities recognizing that different communities have different needs and that it's important to meet the unique needs of people and communities. And that's why this partnership with Children's National Hospital is extremely exciting. Um, it's one way that we can help bridge that gap and build commun- healthy communities right here in D.C. This is This grant is just one of many ways that the United Health Foundation continues to support these efforts. And the model advanced by the Children's National Hospital is it tremendously innovative. If you think about it, uh, the wards 7 and 8 in Washington, D.C., have you know, pretty high um, um, levels of, of inequities that impact children's health. They're high rates of child poverty, high rates of asthma and obesity. And what this model does is it involves multiple stakeholders, brings together school nurses, community health workers, the child and the caregiver and the school staff, right? Um, And all that um, comes together through an overlay of health records, immunization records and attendance data. So leveraging this model, it is then possible to connect children and families via telemedicine services to appropriate behavioral health support needs um, that address not just mental health issues, but also that help address asthma and other medical needs. And this provides the child with well child visits, um, intervention for their urgent care, behavioral health and development screenings. But this is a really impressive model.
3: Uh, Dr. Rose, let me ask you about how this will improve access in the city and what makes this unique. So there are several
0: different components that you just heard that are involved in this particular partnership, and we are so grateful to United Health Foundation for the investment. There are community health workers, there is data, there is uh, sharing of information, there is involvement of community partners, all of those many different pieces collaborate in a very innovative way in order to improve the health outcomes for children, regardless of where they actually access the initiative. There is a specific aspect of the model called the CARES Initiative, which stands for Chronic Absenteeism Reduction Effort. And this is an initiative that helps to share absenteeism data with primary care pediatricians through a health information exchange system. Pediatricians already access information about ER utilization as well as hospitalization through this particular health information exchange. Just imagine if you overlay on top of that information about how many kids are missing school on a routine basis. It helps us to identify children who might be at risk. And then the children's uh, school nurse system will help to identify kids who might be under immunized or due for immunizations. And that is another avenue where we might be able to deploy the mobile medical unit directly to the highest need schools in order to address things like immunizations, provide routine care, provide mental health screenings. We then leverage telemedicine in order to connect families with additional resources, medical resources that we might not have on the mobile medical unit. We then access community health workers, individuals who are from the community, familiar with the community, and also familiar with the resources in order to help address the social determinants of needs. So not only are we doing care coordination, addressing comprehensive care, um, and we're also leveraging technology in order to address the health outcomes for the highest needs students and children in the district.
3: Dr. Wilson, look to the future. What will addressing health inequity look like? And will it take continued heavy investment?
5: Looking into the future, simply stated, addressing health um, inequities is the right thing to do. Dr. Rhodes referred to uh, social challenges like poverty and poor quality housing, both of which are linked to higher rates of chronic disease. We think about the impact on the child. Um, Diseases like asthma have higher rates in the D.C. area. There are also um, troubling statistics around the prevalence of obesity, mental health challenges, anxiety and depression. And then we think of the fact that over a third of fourth grade public students in the United States um, score proficient or over in the national reading assessment. We think about it, these statistics are unacceptable and they cannot continue. Our children are our future. And at United Health Group, we are committed to working with partners to address health inequities. It's at the root of our mission, helping people live healthier lives and helping make the healthcare system work better for everyone, not just those who can afford it, but for everyone. And in our view, we can only achieve that when everyone, child and adult, has the opportunity to attain their highest life without any barriers. And we're committed to helping achieve this.
3: Dr. Margaret Mary Wilson, Executive Vice President and Associate Chief Medical Officer of United Health Group. Thanks for joining me. same to Dr. Hope Rhodes, medical director at the ARC and co-medical director of the Healthy Generations program at Children's National Hospital.
0: And now back to Washington Post Live.
2: Welcome back to Washington Post Live. For those of you just joining us, I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer here at the Washington Post. To continue this conversation about children's health equity, I'm joined by Dr. James Perrin, professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and the former director of the American Academy of Pediatrics and Dr. Kauser Talat, vaccine expert at the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins University. Thank you both very, very much for coming to Washington Post Live. Thank you very much for the information. So, Dr. Perrin, uh, let me start with you, and let's start with well-child visits. How do they impact future health, especially for children who don't have access to sufficient health services as an infant?
6: Well, first of all, well-child visits are really part of helping to ensure that children grow up healthy, that gives them and their parents the kinds of skills and abilities, as well as the preventive care that really helps them grow up. And you know, I, I think that Minister uh, administrator books has sure talked about rising rates of mental health conditions among America's kids, especially kids in poverty. And indeed, we have a lot of work we can do in prevention of that area too.
2: Um, you know, I have a question deeper into the conversation about that very point, but I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to hold off on that. Dr. Tot, many of these visits include vaccinations, which have been front and center. Uh, throughout the pandemic, explain how vaccines help to level the playing field for children's health.
4: Vaccines are a really good way to improve equity very quickly because they are a low, low, low. Um, you you only need a vaccine once or twice in your life to prevent a disease from happening ever. And if you can prevent a disease from happening, you never have to treat it. Um, You never have to deal with the sequela of the disease. And so if you can vaccinate everybody, then they will never have to deal with measles. They will never have to deal with with rotavirus. They don't um, have to, um, for COVID um, especially, vaccines can prevent hospitalizations and severe disease. And so if you can prevent that, it will take away the extra burden of having to seek healthcare for people who have less less access
2: mm-hmm. but dr Tal, how how big of an issue is access to to vaccines i mean what needs to be done for access for vaccines to be more readily available to children across the country so access to vaccines
4: is a really important. Um, is really important because we know that not everybody has the same access to healthcare. Not everybody has a pediatrician that they go to, as um, as the CMS director was talking about. You know, people are um, not as not a are more likely to enroll their children in CHIP if they also have insurance. And so we need to make sure that there's vaccines available in as many places as children are present. Um, it would be great to have vaccine clinics at schools um, for kids who don't have access to health care.
2: Um, one more question on vaccines, and I'd love for uh, Dr. Perrin for you to get in on this as well. I'm wondering how much vaccine hesitancy contributes to larger uh, inequities among children. Dr. Tillot first. Oh, I'm sorry, I thought that was um uh, so for the most
4: part, vaccine hesitancy doesn't seem to be a huge role in pediatric vaccines with the exception of a couple of vaccines that, that people are hesitant about. Um, I think most of the kids who are unvaccinated, it's, um, it has a lot more to do with, with access. Um, we, do, we are seeing rising rates of vaccine hesitancy um, in the United States for pediatric vaccines and that is something to be very concerned about and to watch carefully.
6: Dr. Perrin. Well, you know, we have a ton of information about vaccines and how incredibly effective they are, as as my colleague just said. Uh, and, And the evidence is really very, very strong about the tremendous value of vaccines. On the other hand, there have been many people who have raised questions about the healthcare professions in general and are worried about them. Many of our, especially poor families of color, have a history of bad experiences in the hands of the health profession and still some hesitancy in believing that what they're getting is the right thing. So I think that does play a role in some of this hesitancy as well.
2: Uh, let me stick with you here on vaccine it, it, vaccines and talk about uh, the politicization, I have a hard time saying that word, but the politicization of, of vaccines. We're seeing it around coronavirus. But are you concerned that that kind of politicization that we're seeing will impact children's vaccines?
6: Absolutely, I I think it's an incredibly dangerous um, aspect of how we're treating a healthcare and medical uh, uh, opportunity and crisis at this point. Uh, And the fact that we have politicized vaccines has really prevented far too many people from getting safe and effective treatments. And and we know that people have died as a result of this politicization.
2: Uh, Dr. Talat, I see you you you've been nodding ever since Dr. Perrin started answering that question. Your your thoughts
4: um I think that it's it's really a very frightening time right now as we see more and more politicization because we know that vaccines save lives. Um, for example, Um, with the COVID vaccines, they are incredibly effective and incredibly effective at saving lives. And what we're seeing now is more, um, more and more the places where vaccine rates are low we see more of the deaths happening in those areas. And in the places where vaccination rates are higher, there are much fewer deaths. Um, And so it's important to not um, politicize vaccines, to not politicize public health, so that we can reach out to as many people as possible and people feel comfortable talking to their healthcare providers and, and to accepting the vaccine.
2: You know, Dr. Perrin, I just want to remind everyone that you are the former director of the American Academy of Pediatrics. And in this conversation that we're having about the politicization of vaccines, have you ever, have, have we seen this before? Or is this brand new? And how, could, and, and how concerned are you that we're moving into an area that we won't be able to pull ourselves out of? Well, first of all, I want to correct you. I'm former
6: president of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Yes. I would never say I directed the American Academy of Pediatrics. <laughs> That's a really big job that other people do better than I could. Um, yeah, look, I do think this is not new. We've had this before. Um, we've been seeing this for measles, for example, uh, and the work in California that uh, Richard Pan, a pediatrician in the state Senate, has really led efforts to get California kids vaccinated against measles. This is not new. There's been vaccine hesitancy um, throughout many, many decades. I I think it's made worse now because of the opportunities through social media to really gather much more support for hesitancy and anti-vaccine activity that there was in the past. This is not new. And it's just absolutely incredibly important to keep finding it. I'm old enough that as a doctor, I've seen measles in American children. I've seen the results, the negative long-term results of measles. I'm old enough that I saw people in iron lungs from polio. So look, these are not minor issues. These
2: are incredibly important issues for the health of our population. And so then, Dr. Talat, how do you um, get people, get communities to uh, overcome their hesitancy, to overcome their resistance and get them to take the vaccine, no matter what the vaccine is for? H- how do you get over that? So I think you start by listening
4: and listening to people and truly understanding what their concerns are and meeting them where they are, um, telling them about your experiences, telling them about what you've seen. Um, It's really important to have trusted messengers in the community, people that, um, that, um, that, parents and others can go to to ask questions on people they 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 believe and that they can trust that can be their pediatrician that could be the pastor of their church Um, it could be um, their barber their hairdresser there's all sorts of creative ways to try to decrease vaccine hesitancy and to um and to and to encourage people to get whatever the vaccine is. But I think the first and most important thing is to listen to people's concerns and understand where they're coming from.
2: let's get into into the the social determinants of health. And Dr. Perrin, um, there's CDC research that shows that that the more traumatic events a person suffers in childhood, physical, emotional, or sexual abuse, mental illness, domestic violence, you name it, the the more likely that person is to suffer from chronic stress-related health problems later in life. Talk more about how a child's mental health affects their future health outcomes.
6: So that's a really super question. Uh, and, And this would really say, we know so much about the incredibly importance of the first three or four or five years of life. It's unbelievably important what we know now about the development of the human brain during this time. And we know that negative events, negative experiences, really affect how the brain works and will affect how the brain works throughout the person's life. So it's critically important to really be dealing with some of these negative events early on in life to prevent that. We also know that in the United States, over the last decade, we've had rising death rates among people of working age in this country. And, and indeed those rising death rates don't just happen in 45 and 50 year olds, it actually starts down in 25 year olds. And we know that those rising death rates reflect in part some of these early negative experiences. So there's a lot we know about what's causing these bad outcomes. And we know more and more what we can do to prevent those
2: bad outcomes. Yeah, I'm going to throw this question out to to both of you. Um, obviously, if we conquered poverty, that you know this would solve a lot of problems. But is that the only way to level the playing field when it comes to equity in healthcare for children? Uh, Dr. Parent, you go first. All right, sure. So first of all. Dealing with child poverty is unbelievably
6: important and the American Academy of Pediatrics has been very clear about the importance of addressing actively uh, prevention and, and getting rid of child poverty in this country. The Child Tax Credit, which has been part of the recent administration's activities, is a really, really important step forward in addressing child poverty. As pediatricians, we strongly support that kind of effort. To improve the well being of America's young families, I'd also say that there are other aspects of improving equity that we can do directly within the healthcare arena. So I know we've talked a bit about Medicaid already today, a phenomenally important program that's done such good things for America's kids. But on the other hand, Medicaid tends to treat uh, its recipients mainly because of how it pays its bills. As not being worth the same as other people in America. So on average, for example, across the states, and it varies from state to state, um, the payment rates for Medicaid are about two-thirds that of the payment rates even for Medicare. So what we basically are saying in public policy then is we think that these people covered by Medicaid are worth about two, about three-quarters of the people who are not covered by Medicaid but are covered by other programs, including Medicare, a public one.
2: Mm -hmm. Dr. Talat, your view on that?
4: So I, I agree with Dr. Perrin that poverty and eliminating poverty would make a huge difference. And um, as a proud member of the AAP, I, I completely support the AAP stance on this, um, but also just making sure that everybody has the same access to health care. And um, for example, for vaccines, there are places in our, in our country that are vaccine deserts where you can't go 15 minutes to get your vaccine. Um, and making sure that everybody, um, including in rural areas, incl- including in highly urban areas, has the same access to health care um, that, that, um, that more um, affluent children do. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, Dr. Talat, we actually have an audience question for you. Um, and this comes from William in Rhode Island. How can we best get kids engaged with their own health care earlier?
4: I think it's really important to talk to them about when they go to the pediatrician, why they go to the pediatrician, to have them do a lot of the the speaking to the doctor and not be the person talking for them, Um, to talk to them about smart choices and healthy choices. Um, If they have Chronic diseases. Um, my daughter has asthma. Um, get them involved in managing their healthcare and and taking their and being responsible for their medications as soon as they're they're able to do that. Um, I think that would go a long way to to um, getting them involved in in their own healthcare and also to talk to them about um, the the health problems that occur in the United States and and elsewhere and and also um, you know make them aware of the bigger picture as well and what their role is in that picture.
2: All right, I'm gonna throw out one more question. It's a leading question, but I think it's a good question to end on. And I'll start with you, Dr. Perrin. Um, How important are vaccine mandates? So
6: vaccine mandates are one of the reasons that the United States has some of the highest rates of vaccine coverage for children who are in school, at school age. We actually have less good coverage rates for children, say, age two than many European countries do, because they actually do have vaccine mandates in European countries for younger children. So I would just say that the evidence is overwhelmingly clear that vaccine mandates do lead to much higher rates of vaccinations. And it's a public health venture. It's something which basically says... Vaccines are incredibly important for the health of the United States public.
2: Dr. Talat?
4: I, I completely agree with Dr. Perrin. And what we found is that in states where the mandates are tighter for kids to go to school um, and they have fewer exemptions, that the vaccination rates are higher. So it's really it's a really great tool to make making sure that all kids are vaccinated
2: doctor Kauser Khauser-Talat, vaccine expert at the Bloomberg School of Public Health at Johns Hopkins University, and Dr. James Perrin, professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and former president, (laughs) not director, former president of the American Academy of Pediatrics. Thank you both very, very much for coming to Washington Post Live. Have a great weekend.
6: You too. Great talking to you.